Revelation chapter 19, we have just a few more chapters left and we'll be done. We are reaching tonight the end of the tribulation period. There still are a few more things that uh, Revelation will deal with here. Chapter 19, uh, we see the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is different than the rapture. Uh, The rapture was at the beginning of the tribulation period and was uh, a time where the Lord appears in the air. He does not come to the earth all the way back. Uh, But He appears in the air, and those that are saved and have trusted Him as their Savior are going to be gathered together and caught up to meet Him in the air. And then there's seven years of tribulation period, and we finished last week dealing with um, the um, seven vile judgments and the destruction of uh, Babylon. We spent uh, a week or so on uh, that great uh, city of Babylon, uh, both in the uh, religious aspect and in the commercial aspect of the city and how that God is going to judge it and destroy it and wipe it off the face of the earth. It is the seat of the beast and the false prophet. It's where they are um, influential. It's where they're based from. And uh, God judges it and brings uh, destruction to it. In chapter number 19, uh, we're going to see the coming of the second coming of Christ and some of the events that go along with it. As we mentioned at the beginning of this book, there are times in Revelation, where a chapter or two will give some insight into events that are further down the road, and then it backs up in the next chapter and kind of gives more detail until it gets there again. And uh, all along we have seen references to some events that are finally going to come to to place in chapter 19. And uh, But understand this, that after the rapture takes place, There are two events that we're going to be speaking of here in chapter number 19 that have been taking place throughout the duration of this seven years. Uh, One of them being, and the first one of them being, is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there are two judgments that Revelation speaks about. There is the judgment seat of Christ, which is uh, God judging Christians for the works that they have done in their life since they have been saved. We are not judged for our... Uh, our sin as far as our eternal destination is concerned, and I'm thankful for that. But we are judged uh, by our works and by what sort they are. And some of them will be able to come forth as shining gold. Some will burn as wood, hay, and stubble. And uh, we will gain rewards and suffer loss of rewards in that judgment. And uh, that will take place. Immediately after the judgment seat of Christ, we will find the marriage of the Lamb, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be reading about those in chapter 19 tonight and learning a little bit about those. And uh, that will be taking place during the uh, seven years. At the end of the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, is the final event of the tribulation period, the Battle of Armageddon, where God uh, brings destruction to um, all of the armies of the earth that have rejected Him. Uh, He casts the beast and the false prophet into the uh, lake of fire. And we're going to see all that here in chapter number 19. So just to kind of give you a a general overview of uh, two events that we're talking about here in chapter 19 that have actually been ongoing from the time of rapture. And uh, and they take place in the chronological order of the judgment seat of Christ first, and then the marriage supper, uh, or the marriage of the Lamb, and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, Then we have one more judgment that's yet to come. It will come at the end of uh, Armageddon and when God judges the earth and the heavens. Uh, and, and purges them with fire, there will be the, what's called the great white throne judgment. And this is where he gathers all of the dead and all of those that are remaining 
uh, are that have, that have died, uh, that had rejected him, and he's going to judge them for eternity. He's going to cast them uh, into the lake of fire at the end of all of that. And so there's one more judgment to come. You and I will not be in that judgment, um, but that will be a judgment for those that are not saved. And that's called the great white throne judgment. Let's look in chapter 19, verse number 1. We'll begin reading. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, for He hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. And again they say, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts uh, fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And I want to stop there for just a moment, and we're going to look at a couple of things here very quickly. The chapter begins with a uh, song of praise and uh, 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 an issuing of, of uh, the voices of the 24 elders, which are um, the symbolically of the Old Testament saints and New Testament saints uh, together, the uh, four beasts, if you'll remember those that are around the throne of God. And then uh, the multitudes of people. These would be those, I believe, that uh, were slain and uh, were martyred during the tribulation period and are now in heaven. And uh, they begin to sing, and the Bible says in verse number, nine, verse number 1, that it is a great voice of much people in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory, honor, and power unto the Lord our God. And so there's a, there's a beginning of a victory celebration, if you will. And the praise that the people give are, is directed solely to God Himself. All of the praise goes to Him for all of it. There's a word that's used here in, uh, in Revelation chapter 19. It's only used uh, four times here in the New Testament, I believe, uh, in this passage. Um, Alleluia. A-L-L-E-L-U-I-A. And this is a, an untranslated word in our English uh, Bibles. It is a uh, transliterated word. Now, let me explain what that is. The Old Testament word that was used when it was written in Hebrew was hallelujah with an H. And uh, then it was transliterated. They did not translate it to a new word, but they transliterated it as best they could letter for letter through the alphabets. And so not doing a, a translation in meaning, but doing a translation literally letter by letter as, as much as they would align themselves. And they did that from Hebrew to Greek first, and then they did the same thing from Greek to Latin, and then they left it that, that way when they did the King James Version of Scripture. They did not translate this word. And so it is the equivalent, it's the same word that was used in the Old Testament for hallelujah. Uh, it's just the Greek transliteration of it, then the Latin transliteration of that, um, and not a translation of the word. The word is based on two parts. Uh, the, the Hebrew word uh, that is uh, hal, uh, halal, uh, which is H-A-L-A-L in our English language. We would not certainly write that in Hebrew because uh, they use a different alphabet. But if we transliterate it, it's H-A-L-A-L would be the first portion of the word. And then the J-A-H, which was a abbreviated form or a shortened form of the name of God in Hebrew, the name of God is J-H-W-H. There is no good pronunciation for it because the Hebrew language does not use vowels. 
It uses breath marks between the letters, the consonants. We would pronounce it uh, Jehovah, or some people would say Yahweh. But uh, they, too, they take uh, some vowels from a Greek word called Adonai, and they put them in that. But the truth is, there is no good pronunciation for it. So if you hear Yahweh, that is not God's name. Um, Y-H-W-H in the, Greek, in the Hebrew language is that, language, is that name. And so the J-A-H in the, in the Hebrew, that last part of Hallelujah, is the shortened version of the J-H. Uh, and with a vowel put in there. Now, the Hebrews, uh, when they did that in the hallelujah form, they did add the vowel in there, and uh, as well as uh, the Greeks and the Latins, and we've kept it in our English King James Bibles. So the J-A-H on the end of hallelujah, they do put that A in between the J and H there. But understand that those last three letters are uh, the shortened version of um, that name of God, that is unpronounceable. Um, it really, if you were to try to pronounce it, would sound like a harsh breath sound as they try to pronounce the letters and almost a whisper uh, because of the way they would have to try to pronounce that. And uh, so it's interesting because it means, the first part of it, Hallel, means to praise to, and then the last part of it is the name of God Himself. And the tense in the Hebrew language is a plural imperative. And that means nothing to you except this. It means that everybody is supposed to be praising Him, and it is not a suggestion, but it is an imperative. And when we express the term hallelujah, what we're saying is not an expression of our praise to Him, but we are encouraging and edifying others to join in praise with us to Him. That's what hallelujah is about. When we say hallelujah, it's not an expression of my heart to Him as much as it is me expressing you. My heart is full. Will you join me in praising Him? And this is an expression we use even to this day. They kept it in our King James Bible because there was no better way to word it than the way they worded it then. And so I, I love the way that they've kept this in our Bibles just for this purpose so that we get the full implication of this and understanding of it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Four times we find the folks in heaven, the multitudes in heaven, expressing this, this phrase, this, this, this word, that literally is telling them, I'm praising God, and I need you to praise, me with, praise Him with me. I want you to join with me in it. It is a plural imperative. Let's do this. Let's all get together and praise. And it's interesting that within the context of this chapter, you'll see that this actually takes place. Look down as we get down to verse number, uh, verse number, uh, five, verse number five. And the voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God and all ye his servants and ye that fear him both small and great. So this voice is, is expressing praise to God, but more importantly, it is impressing upon those others. I want all of you to join me in praising him. And I heard as it were, notice this, the voice of a what? Great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. In verse number uh, one, in verse number, uh, yeah, in verse number one, we hear this great voice, and we hear much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah. 
But when we get down to verse number 6, we find that as a result of their continuous expression of hallelujah, we find that it says now that there is a voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying hallelujah. Can I encourage you in this? I know that sounds like a simple thing to find in this passage, but you know what would help people praise God more? To hear you praise God. And if we start praising God, others will join with us. Because it doesn't take very long thinking about God's goodness and His might and His power and His victory over everything. The fact that He has all things in control. It doesn't take us very long to begin thinking on those things that we don't all rejoice. Miss Penny shared that story tonight that Brother Norm or Miss Evelyn shared with her. And it caused her to rejoice in it. She was excited to tell somebody. And I'll be honest with you, when I heard it, I thought, wow, that's a great story. I'm going to go out here and tell somebody about that. Why? Because praise will generate more praise. And by the way, as Baptists, we do not have to be afraid of the word praise. It is in Scripture. It's what we're going to be doing in heaven. We might as well get used to it. What a wonderful thing that God allows us to do. Now I want you to notice also as we get down to verse number 6. He says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of many multitudes, and uh, uh, as, oh, sorry, of a great multitude, and the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, and this is the only time you'll find this word in your King James Bible, omnipotent, reigneth. Now, I will say this, that the omnipotence of God is on display all through Scripture. It is clearly seen and illustrated over and over and over again. But here, only one time is it ever expressed in these words, omnipotent. The word omni meaning all, and potent meaning power, meaning He has all power in everything. He is He is all of power. I was talking to some folks a while back, and I think it's hard for us to understand this. Because everything that we understand about material things or meeting the needs of somebody, uh, we think in terms of finite supply. So let me explain what I mean by that. If we hear that somebody has a need, let's say it's one of our family members, and our heart's broken for them, we want to help them, and the first thing we do is think about, uh, let's say they need uh, their rent payment this month. The first thing we think about is, I wonder what the balance is in my bank account. Am I able to help them? We think in terms of, it's going to deplete me if I give something to them. And, and we are prone, because that's all we understand and that's all we know as humans, to think this way. But does it, does it ever come across our minds that when God spoke the worlds into existence and stepped out on nothing and just spoke it, and it was so. When God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and then it says He rested on the seventh day, it was not because God was tired. He did not deplete His power in any way. There was no depletion of it. By the way, when it comes to His resources, the psalmist said, Deal bountifully with Thy servant, Lord. And he's expressing to the Lord, I don't want you to deal with me out of my merit. I want you to deal with me from Your bounty and the fact that You're a gracious God. I'll tell you, I'd far rather depend on God's bountiful blessing on me than my merited blessing. Because I'll tell you, my merited blessing isn't going to get me very far. In fact, it's not going to get me anywhere. 
Have you ever thought about this? I know, and, and here's, here's how I know that we struggle with this thought. Here's how I know it. Because if I don't have $5 to buy a cup of coffee, I might pray about it, but I'm not going to call pastor and ask him to pray about it. But if I can't pay my mortgage payment this month, I'm going to call pastor. I'm going to call that missionary down the road. I'm going to call that widow lady in the church that I know prays. And I'm going to get everybody I can praying for it. You know why? Because we don't understand that God can meet that need just as easily as He can the little cup of coffee over here. And it does not deplete Him. We think in terms of limited means and resources. We think in terms of depletion of material things. Can I tell you this? God, the Bible says, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I was listening to a scientist the other day. They were talking about some light. <clears throat> from a galaxy they were just being able to see. And they said this, this thing that this telescope was able to get a picture of, and they made this statement, it was 50, I think it was 53 or 55 million light years away from us. Can you imagine that kind of a distance? That means that traveling at the speed of light, which is pretty fast, don't know what it is, but it's pretty fast, traveling at the speed of light, it would take 50-some million years for that light to reach it. That's the kind of distance there was. And that's a near galaxy to us. And then to hear that the Bible says that God measures the heavens with the span of His hand. And that's not a limiting measurement saying that His hand is just as big as the heavens. It's trying to express to us He's immeasurable. He is without measure. For us to say, well, I just can't get victory in this area of my life. I just don't know if I can make it. And yet God has promised us His strength. We think too little of God. We think of Him in terms of depleted power. Boy, I just, I know God is powerful, but boy, this is a big thing. And God looks down and laughs at us or, or cries at our lack of faith. Peter gets out of the boat in the middle of a storm. And before we're too critical of Peter for taking his eyes off of Christ and sinking, he's the only other man other than Christ himself that's ever walked on water. He gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water. And God called him a man of little faith. I wonder what mine must look like. I wonder what yours must look like. We look at the work that God gives us to do. Pastor, I just don't know if I can do that. Well, absolutely, I would hope that you couldn't do that. By the way, I hope I can't do the work that God's given me to do. Because maybe then I'll say, Lord, I can't do it. I've got to have you. If it's going to get done, you're going to have to do it. I'm willing to go, but you're going to have to do the work. Why? Because His power is not able to be depleted. The Bible tells us here in this passage, He is omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. There, there is no power depletion with God. There is no material wealth or means that He's depleted. I tell people often, money is relative. It really is. The lack of money is relative. Do you know that? It really is. Whether I need five... 
$5,000 or $5,000, it's all relative. As long as you have a relative with big money, you're good to go. And I say that half in humor, but the truth is, I have a father who has unlimited resources. And I'm not talking about unlimited as in the billions of dollars that at some point you probably could exhaust them. I'm talking about one that you cannot exhaust them. If he ever ran out of stuff, he'd create more. If he ever got tired, he'd give himself more power. Somebody asked me years ago and, and tried to stump me up. He said, you believe God can do anything? I said, yes, I do. He said, do you believe God can make a rock that's too big for him to pick up? And they were trying to make a, a, you know, a fool out of me and trying to get me. I didn't know how to answer that. I now know the answer. The answer is absolutely. He could make a rock that's bigger than he could pick up. But then he could make himself big enough to pick the rock up again. Because he's got that much power. And we've got to understand this. And I'm not just trying to, to be on a rabbit's trail here. I don't think we think about these things enough. Our faith is weak in areas of asking God for the things that we need, the things He's commanded us to bring to Him and to ask Him for. And I think we are so weak in this area that, that we don't even have the mustard seed faith that He spoke of. We don't even have that much. Because we think in terms of what we know and we can understand. That's why so often I say what we think of God, and A.W. Tozer said it best, what we think of God, He is not. He is far, far beyond that. He exceeds what we can think of Him. Verse 6 says that He is omnipotent and that He reigneth. This power that He has causes Him to be the King of kings. Look with me in verse 16. And He hath on His vesture and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Can you, can you kind of hear the heavens rejoicing in the victory? They're, they're at the end of the tribulation. They're seeing God's judgment come to fruition. They're, they're, they're sensing the end is near and the victory rally is already beginning to rise. And the more they begin to praise, the more excited they get. And the more they fully understand the might and the power of God. In verse 7 it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. By the way, I want to talk about this just for a minute. And I know we don't have a whole lot of time here tonight. We might have to make two lessons out of chapter 19. You know, the Bible talks about in the Old Testament, Israel being the bride or being the wife of Christ, that they are married. It does not refer to them specifically as being His bride, yet to be married. It does talk about him being the bridegroom, and so I want to just make sure that I clarify this with, with our folks, that although Israel is God's chosen people, not every Jew is going to be in heaven. The bride that is spoken of here are those that have trusted Christ as their Savior before the rapture and the tribulation period. These, these are the ones that were raptured when Jesus was told to go get his bride at the rapture. This is who he, this is who he brings with him. Those that are dead in Christ arise. Those of us that are alive and remain arise. And we are the bride of Christ. We will go through the judgment seat of Christ, however long that takes. And I'm not sure. It doesn't tell us chronologically how long that will take. We will be married to Christ and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, the reception of the marriage, throughout the time of the tribulation period. And here's the marriage of the Lamb. And the end of it is taking place here. And uh, the Bible says, and I want you to notice this in verse number 8. 
uh, verse number 7. The Bible says at the end of it, And his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed, arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Can I tell you this? Do you and I have any righteousness? <laughs> Only that which the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us. Our garments are spotted. They are crimson. But they've been made white as snow in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a joy to be saved. We will be able to stand that day, not with our garment, but we will be a bride, a wife that has made ourselves ready for Him. We have put on His garment that allows it to be white and fine linen and pure. The righteousness that He imputes to us and gives to us. Notice what it says in verse number 9, And He saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. <coughs> and He saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at His feet to worship Him. And speaking of the angel that's giving Him this message, by the way. And He said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have... <coughs> excuse me. That have the testimony of Jesus... Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here's an angel that John gets ready to bow himself to and worship because of, of the righteousness and the holiness and the glory of this angel. And the angel says, whoa, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant like you. He says, who, do, who does he say to worship? He, look at it, it says there. In verse number 10, I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. What does he say here? Worship God. That's who we worship. We don't worship the angels. We don't worship the saints that have gone before us. They're fellow servants. We worship God. That's who we give the glory to. That's who we give the praise to. And this, this uh, verse number 11, And I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge <coughs> and make war. This is Christ Himself. This is God coming on that white horse, the Lord Jesus Christ coming back. And He's judging this time in faithful and true. He came the first time as a servant riding a donkey. The second time He comes as a, a conquering judge. He's riding as the King of the kings and the Lord of lords. He comes righteous and true and faithful. And He judges those that make war against Him. His eyes, notice verse number 12, were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In the first part of Revelation, the Bible talks about there's a witness, or three witnesses of heaven. Ah, that are giving this, and it was God and the Word and the Spirit. We find here in verse number 14, "...the armies which were in heaven followed Him upon white horses, <coughs> clothed in linen, white and clean." Who do you think that is? If they're clothed in linen, white and clean, we just saw that a second ago, didn't we? That's His bride. He doesn't go anywhere without her. Those are the saints that are coming with Him. 
We're riding horses too. And notice this, it says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with the rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress wine of the fiercest of the wrath of Almighty God. So out of his mouth there's this two-edged sword that's coming out. And uh, I want to. Uh, there is a verse I have written here in my notes. I want to find and read for you real quick. And I know we're getting getting close here. We're at eight o'clock. And if you give me just a moment, we'll be done here. But I, I do want to. I do want to read this one verse to you to explain what this is. Let's look in uh, Isaiah chapter number eleven. <coughs> Isaiah chapter eleven, and Isaiah speaks of this. <coughs> Excuse me. Isaiah chapter 11, and verse number 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness, now speaking here of, this, this coming of the judgment. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's an interesting phrase here. And with the what? Breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So we, we look back to the revelation. And this is not the gospel that is coming out. The gospel was a word of peace, but it is the judging word of God, the standard that God has given in His word. This is what He judges the world with, His word. And He's going to slay them, the Bible says, with the breath of His mouth. As we get down back in Revelation chapter 19, we find out that in verse number 15, out of his mouth goeth this sharp sword. I believe personally that it is not a physical sword coming out of his mouth, but it is the sharp sword of his word in judgment. Because it speaks of the fact that, that this sword uh, is going to smite the nations, and yet in Isaiah it says that he's going to slay them with the breath of his mouth. Now you can, you can say, Pastor, that might be a far stretch. That's what I personally believe. If you differ with me, I'm going to smile at you, shake your hand, and we'll find out when we get to heaven who's right on it. And it doesn't really matter that much. But suffice to say, God is going to smite them with whatever it is that's coming out of His mouth. And uh, notice He says, He treadeth out the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and He hath on His vesture and on the thigh the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls, that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God. Do not get this mixed up. <laughs> Verse 17, the supper of the great God is not the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you think that, you'll think there's cannibalism going on. Because <laughs> it is not that. He's gathering the fowls of the air together to feast upon the slain bodies of those that had gathered themselves in the valley of Arnhem Geddon. We've already read and found out from a couple weeks ago that there's going to be about a 200-mile stretch of valley that the blood will flow to the bridle of a horse. That is a lot of slaying of bodies. 
And the fowls are going to be called by God to feast upon these bodies. Look what it says here. Verse number 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. You say, Pastor, why is that important? Because when it comes to the judgment of God, there is no respecter of persons. I don't care how wealthy you are. I don't care how much power and affluence you have. I don't care how much influence you have in this world. Every single one that has rejected Christ at this point will come under His judgment without mercy. It does not matter whether they are bond or free, whether they are small or great, whether they are kings, whether they are captains, or whether they are just mighty men. And I saw the beast, verse 19, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them, that had the mark of the beast. And them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive, that's important, into the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. Just like Elijah and Enoch, were translated and did not go through death, the beast, the false prophet, will also not go through death, but will be cast into the lake of fire. And the remnant were slain. These would be those that are left behind after the beast and the false prophet have been cast into the lake of fire. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And this marks the end of what we know as the tribulation period. From this point on, we now are going to see a couple more kind of tidying up events that God is going to do. There's going to be the great white throne judgment. We're going to see the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives a few words of admonition and explanation in the last chapter or so and just kind of tying up some loose ends. I'm very excited and I'm looking forward to the day that we all go to heaven. And I'm looking forward to the day that I get to enjoy the marriage and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not so much thinking I'm going to enjoy the judgment seat of Christ. I think there will be some joy there with the rewards that we'll get. But I think there's going to be some tears there too. And uh, but I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to that. I'm getting excited about it. And then to be able to be with the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of eternity. I don't know about you, but I, I get excited every time I think about that. We get, to, we get to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years here on this earth. He's going to bring His bride with Him when He comes back. And He's going to rule and reign this earth for a thousand years. And we get to be here with Him. Could you imagine this world without sin, under the rule of God, everything's right, that means that probably Republicans are in office at that time. I'm just kidding. Could you imagine being under the government of God Himself? Perfect justice. No more sin, no more enticement to sin. No more causing us to have to uh, be tempted in our glorified bodies. Could you imagine that? I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to it. What a wonderful, wonderful day that's going to be. When my Jesus I shall see.
when He takes me by the hand, leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that'll be. No wonder this chapter began with the victory shout. People crying, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And uh, 